Welcome to Ecobolic Radio, a listening experience dedicated to making the world stronger, one conversation at a time. Because strength is never a weakness. All right, welcome to Ecobolic Radio with your host, Derek Woodski. I'm really excited to have one of my athletes and someone that I've gotten to work with hands-on for a number of years, Brad Soper, strength and conditioning coach at School of Strong, as well as Triple X Fight Academy in Sydney, Australia. Today, Brad and I get heavy into the concepts of strength and conditioning, program design, and setting up program design for not only his endeavor, the world's strongest man, but how to set up program design for the best results when dealing with field-based athletes, as well as mixed martial artists. All right. Thanks for stopping in. I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope you're doing great. Really good. And yourself? Doing really well. It's been a long time since we've had a chance to just sit down and talk about the industry a little bit. And I know that there's been some changes that have come into your career since I spoke to you last. And we'll get into some of that. But to start off right now, where are you at in your current prep for Strongest Man and the Arnold? Okay, so currently, I'm five weeks out. Um now I move, so basically in, in preparation terms, it's basically past your general prep phase, moving more into the, the sort of peaking or the, the overreaching phase through the middle, and then we'll go into the peaking phase towards the back end. But now pretty much moving back to our old system that we used to use, which is our four days of four-day week training, uh, two times a day, um, and then we've got three days off. But that's, that's pretty much where the prep sits at the moment. Everything's moving is, uh, smoothly. Everything's moving uh, progressively, which is the main thing. Um, so, yeah, it's looking positive. Now, with your training and everything that's been leading up to this, how has your prep been in terms of overall? How's your strength? How's your progressions? And how long have you been prepping now for the strongman contest at the Arnold's? Uh, for this specific comp, it's only sort of just the turn of this year. Um, so it's been about 12 weeks. Um, and basically what I do now is obviously with work and the workload that you get there, so it's obviously it's hard to be just professional and, and concentrate on that. So basically I'll, I'll idle along, which is basically keep your base strength parameters, um, sort of not do anything too general specifically to, to the events. And then eight weeks out, I'll turn into like very specific and, and very turn, turn, the, turn the wick up, as you say, and, and go into the intensive drives. Just basically as I get older too, um, having the long preps, uh, sometimes find out that I get burnt out before I actually get to the comp. I'm finding eight weeks where I'm, I'm doing the double days um, and sort of peaking up to it gives me more of a motivational drive as well. Um, allows me to sink my teeth in a lot harder and push for that short period. Uh, as far as strength goes, um, I'm, only, I'm still not at maximum strength, so I don't want to be reaching that anyway early in the prep. So I'm probably about two or three weeks of actually getting to max strength where, where I'll be at and then obviously just turning that into specific events and, and transferring over to actually performing specifically to the event times or weights um, in the back end of that prep. Now, with your preparation and your strength, for those that are listening, what weight class are you going to be competing at this year? And what is, in a sense, what are your best lifts for the traditional sense? Where's your deadlift at? Where's your power clean at, et cetera? Where are you at right now in terms of those lifts that Okay, so uh, I'll compete at under 90 kilos. Um, I'll walk around during training preps anywhere between 94 to 97 sort of kilos, um, give or take, depending on, on where I'm at. Uh, my best lifts will always be the dynamic moving lifts. So anything that's uh, like a yoke run at a medley or a farmer's walk, they're always traditionally my, 
my better lifts or my better events, and that's just purely through having an athletic background, a sporting background, uh, playing rugby league. Um, the static lifts, they're reasonable, don't, don't, don't get me wrong, but they're just not at, at the top echelon where I like them to be. So they're always the work in progress um, in that side of it and basically building back up overhead strength again. I've sort of lost that towards the back end of last year with a few injuries, so obviously trying to piece that back together. Now, when you look back on your rugby league career, how long did you get to play for and how much of an impact do you think that's had on your ability to transition into additional strength endeavors like the subcategories for world's strongest man okay so basically i started playing when i was seven um obviously not at the professional level or semi semi professional level but i played all the way up until i was 27 i think 27 or 28 i'm 33 now um so the way the transfer over is um it pretty much has an aspect in every sort of possibility of, of event um first of all the mental side of it basically of, of either handling pressure or the adversity that might come through an event um, and then obviously the actual activation or actor, the athletic side of it to actually be able to, to learn a movement quickly um, and then to find a way if, if that technical sound uh, movement doesn't work for you to adapt and then be able to perform it the best way you can on a given, in, in a given moment to actually execute and actually get a result. Um, they're sort of skills, you, like you say, you sort of can't just learn them on the fly. They're sort of developed over right. time where you're sort of just surviving. Um, and just making do so it doesn't mean it has to be perfect all the time but you have to survive at a top level and, and making the adjustments and fly is always critical so you'd mentioned that you had pulled back to a twice a day four day a week training block and that's something that you and i had worked on off and on over the years and one of the methodologies to that or belief systems is stacking sessions on fewer days so that a larger percentage of your given week is geared towards restoration or life because you also have a career that you balance with your athleticism how much of a difference have you found that doing two days four days a week benefits you as opposed to these situations where you're seeing guys doing one session five days a week or people grinding six days a week thinking that's the best way to do it um pretty much if you if you the benefit of it, it speaks for itself. The results always speak uh, louder than any sort of science or any sort of um, argument that you can have. But if you peeled it back even further and just went the logic of it, um, you pretty much answered all the questions of, of how um, effective it can be. You're restoring now up to 40% of your week. You're training 60% um, and you're stacking sessions. So so when your nervous system's up and, and when your energy's up, you actually work and when you rest, you rest. Um, so you're not always dipping into the world of trying to to bring up your energy stores or try, trying to raise adrenaline to try and perform. Um, you do that on your days. As a work side of it, it's the same thing. When you work, you work. So the way I look at it is I do most of my big heavy days is the days that I train also. So I'll stack a big day in. And when I have a rest, I, that, that's the priority of the day is to rest, restore, um, pick up all the little pieces that you may need that may be hanging over from the other days. But your mindset changes dramatically. It's, it's, you're there to work, you work. And when you rest, you rest. Um, but but as far as results go, I, I can't you can't fault the system at all, especially if you've got time. Like I can understand the argument may be, oh look, I don't have time to train twice a day. Well, then that's not for you. That's of course. But if you do have the time, uh, there's no better system to actually speed up results or speed up an effective training system, but also to be able to perform. It's um, you look at the fighters too; they're pretty much doing it. Um, sometimes they train too much as well, but if they peeled it back, that they'd get the same sort of effect. 
See, that's an interesting point. And as we progress away from talking about your athletic endeavors and things that are coming up, and we start talking about what you do as a profession and and coaching fighters and coaching athletes and coaching general pop, how difficult is it or is it even difficult for you to get people coming in to work with you as a coach to sort of start looking at some different ways of doing it instead of always in this mentality where they have to do more every single day and any day that they rest is potentially a day that their competitor is improving? How do you start to break that mentality? Because it is a tough one to break. Basically, the easiest way to break it back down to them, um, if they come from an old mythology or the old sort of stigma of what they're doing, is, is obviously you've got to buy in and try and get that first four weeks where you can actually um, get them to accept the new mythology um, or system that you want to put in place. And once you do that, you basically just get them to keep accountability or, or track their performance and their sort of energies um, and the way they feel their emotions, I guess, towards training and then their performance in training. And then once the results are down and speaks for themselves, like the rest, the rest, you don't have to sell anything. You don't have to try and convince them. You sort of let their performance, their results speak for themselves. But getting the buy-in is the hardest thing um, that you can actually do. So that's just basically building the rapport up, um, building the communication up, and then obviously having the feedback as a coach. So if you if the communication stay open and you can understand where they're at and and trying to level on the field instead of just being a pure consultant and just um, telling them this is how it is and then coaching them into the rest days and coaching them how like it's going to be beneficial. And then obviously when they come off rest day and they perform better in the gym, then the confidence swings over and then they become, um, they're, they're into it. They, they actually buy in and then they apply themselves a lot better. So it just really does become a situation where you have to get them into the initial phases and let them see the results and experience the results. And that starts to sell the concept of your training. And when you look at how you set up things now at the gym that you're at, could you break down a little bit? Because I I think this is going to be really valuable to the people that are checking us out today is talk a little bit about the gym that you're coaching out of and some of the athletes that you're working with. And then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of how you set up your programming for those athletes. Okay. So basically the gym about triple x fight academy um and it's basically a fight gym okay but like any gyms around around the world you're gonna get your general population in everyone wants to be a fighter everyone wants to be an athlete or train like an athlete but not everyone can do that depending on their circumstances around so everyone's uh, individual circumstance so the way you always set it up basically is you have to you have to get the feedback of them where you're currently at what's your current schedule what's your current load and we piece it from there. Um, to break it down, basically, we try and get the most effect, as, as a lot of coaches out there saying, the most effect, uh, most effect, training effect, from the minimal amount of stimulus. And that way allows the greatest performance, basically. So the ideology that we get into the gym is basically you're training to perform. You're not, your training is not your performance. Your training is not your grand final. So once we sort of win that over and, and we start to build towards a goal instead of building into each session as a goal, then we start to get a more of a foundation that they know that they're working. They're not just there to perform. They're not there for that day. Um, and once we can grab that concept that is always working or, or we're building for a greater good or a greater cause down the track, then the pieces start to lie a lot easier. They understand that everything has a principle or a purpose towards something else, and then they start to apply that sort of given um, whatever stimulus it may be in a greater intensity because they know that it's building a block to, to a further intensity. Now, Obviously, we all have the, the pinnacle of a program or a pinnacle of a sort of system that we put in place. 
from each person that comes in an individual status, you just start taking the layers back from whatever they can actually capable of or whatever their sort of training level or their, their understanding of training is at. So obviously at the peak, we've got the four days a week, two times a session, sometimes even three times a day, depending on the, the fighter or depending on the athlete. And everything just comes back. So we go back all the way back to ground level for a GPP client and they walk in and they're, they're a newbie. They might even be just starting on three days a week because right. them walking in the door for GPP as opposed to a top level athlete, they've got 100% um, sort of window for improvement. We're a top-level athlete, maybe only have 1% or 2%. So we're looking for the minor details for the top athlete. We're looking at the major building blocks for a GPP. And GPP, so whatever they walk in at, they're at 0%. Whatever we give them, they're already going to improve. So we don't have to throw um, the biggest, baddest program at them. All we're doing is building blocks, and then that allows us to have a longer progression with them and a longer successful successful progression because we're not trying to break them day one. And that's the same um, sort of methodology that we use with any client or any athlete that we coach. So when you're getting into a situation like where you're working at Triple X Fight Academy and you're doing programming for world-class athletes, is it a situation where you're working with the actual fight staff and working with them to set up your programming? Or is it a situation where you're a little more on your own and you try to guess and play the pieces together based off the conversation you're having with the fighters? Is it a holistic system or is it more a bunch of pieces that you guys are doing right now? It's, it's all different depending on the actual athlete. So the more athlete I spend time with, more than I've got the holistic approach and I can actually have more of a say. Sometimes it's me just gathering everyone's pieces and I actually don't do nothing with them because they'll come to me and I'll be like, look, I want to do this. And I look at all the pieces and I'm like, well, okay, let's all, all the coaches come together and sit down and, and actually go, okay, look, I can – I can give this session up or I definitely need this session, then it doesn't work in a systematic way. It doesn't, right. it can't do that. So sometimes in our industry, the strength and condition coach doesn't matter what the pieces are. They just want to be the big dick on campus and go, no, this is what you're going to do. Right. This is going to make you better. But sometimes we just add an over, overtraining wheel in. And sometimes my job is to actually sit back and just go, okay, come in and stretch. Tell me about your week. Maybe we'll work on nutrition. Maybe we'll work on trying to add some recovery measures in. And they're still better because all I'm doing now is going into injury prevention mode, which was, which is our role anyway, right? Because right. their sport isn't strength and conditioning. Their sport is fighting, for instance, or it could be rugby league. So if they're not on the field, it, do, it doesn't matter. So that sometimes my job gets peeled back and I'm just sort of this there as, as a need to talk to. Um, and then basically keeping confident, keeping them mobile enough to actually be injury-free or activated through sort of different ranges of motions, and then that's that's as far as my job goes. Um, and that's on the, the, the bottom end scale where I don't have all the pieces or I don't have control of the pieces, and then obviously on the top end of the scale where, where I sit back and I can sort of monitor and then actually take control of the week, then it becomes much more, um, well, more detailed and more more in control of what that athlete has to do and what their session's got to detail, how long the session's going to go for, um, and then how long the break between sessions actually get. See, and you make a really valuable point because what a lot of coaches don't understand in terms of the strength and conditioning side of it is unless you are an Olympic weightlifting coach or a powerlifting coach and your athletes are Olympic weightlifters or powerlifters, at best, our role is as support staff. So even in the NFL, we were always support staff to the players, always support staff to the league, always support staff to the coaches. And that's a tough spot for a lot of people in the weightlifting world that don't do sport-specific lifts because they feel like they 
are more valuable sometimes than they actually are. And it's not that we're not valuable. It's that our role is maybe not as significant as people like to believe. And learning how to put, yeah, right. Uh, Learning how to put those pieces into place where your job is to keep an athlete healthy, priority one. And priority two and three and four is obviously the increase in performance and the decrease in issues that may be related to human movement. So when you set up your programming with your athletes, rugby league, even let's even talk some private clientele that just want to train a certain way. Typically, when somebody comes in to see you at your facility, how do you start that process? Like, how do you introduce yourself as a coach to them? Because you're not just a personal trainer. You're a coach that has a huge wealth of knowledge in actual sport performance. Yeah. I, th- I think that, like, like you hit the nail on the head there within the industry itself as in a whole, not even just about what I'm about to talk to, is that we just have to lose the ego of, the coaching is not about us as a coach. It's about your client or it's about athlete. I think a lot of coaches, like you say, get lost and think that it's their job to impress or be the the star of the show. So if you peel it back and then you have to be, as a coach, now you have to be acceptable that you're not going to be up in lights. You're just a coach. If you're a past coach or a past athlete or you're trying to be the Instagram famous person, sometimes you're going to succeed as a coach. You might succeed as like a motivational person but the coach as a coach is a background player, like you say. Um, so when I introduce myself, say, to a GPB client, the first and foremost thing is also you've got to relate to them as it's about them. Um, I don't get the satisfaction of them succeeding. I get that. But the results they're going to get is all for them. The, the improvements right. they get in health, it's about them. Absolutely. Um, and as soon as, soon as, as coaches, we, get, we, we can come to the te- terms of like, okay, they're not here for me. They're here for the, to better themselves. So basically, same thing as an athletic thing. Their performance side is in their workplace. The better they are at work, the better they're going to be able to afford to keep coming to see a trainer, and the better they're going to value your service. If you think that they need to value your service straight away, you have to give them that value first. You have to show them that it's about them, that you're there to build them and to help them. And they, just because they're not on the field as an athletic doesn't mean that's not their, they're not a performance person. Their performance, they could be CEO somewhere. They could be running a business and, and that's right. their goal and that's their mainstream. And the same thing applies. What we do in the, in the weight room is just a, a simple tool to help them be better at life, to help them be healthier at life, to prolong their life even, or to save someone's life in certain situations when they come obese. And that even gets me back onto sometimes now you hear trainers like, oh, I don't want to train fat people. I just want to train athletes. Like, no, no, that's, you fuck, they hire you as a coach. You're hired to do a job. It's that simple. Yes. You do one, that job. 100%. It's not, it's not, they're, not, they're not there for you. You hired. Um, and I think that's where sometimes this whole social media can be – brainstorming the, the wrong influence for coaches of, oh, look, you have to have X amount of followers to be a successful coach or whatever. It's, it's not even that. You're just hired to do a job, and the better you do your job is, is how successful you're going to be. That's that simple um, in our career. And it gets back to the old school of having a higher referral system through word of mouth is, is going to be the tale of your success more so than how many things you can post. But basically, that's how I introduce myself is like to – to un- for them to understand it's about them and understand it's about their performance and they've hired me to do a job and the only way they're going to allow will allow we both get a result is to let me do my job, which is listen to me basically, but yeah. they're still going to get them to buy in and basically say, look, and get that point across. You've hired me, let me do my job. It's about you. 
but you've got to have to understand that you've hired me, so this is how we play. I think you make a really valuable point because we have a tendency to oversimplify the concept of, of how would I say this? You're being hired to do a very complete, rigorous, blue-collar evaluation in a very technologically, socially exhausted world. So by that, what I mean is we have a tendency to look on social media and we see personal training and physique coaches and physique competitors, and it's very clean and sterile and flashy and beaches and sunshine and palm trees. But the reality is the actual process of achieving a physical composition change or athletic performance improvement is very blue collar. It's very nuts and bolts. It's very hands in the dirt. You got to come in and you got to grind and you got to sweat and you got to do the things that are necessary to make your body change. Nutrition is not sexy. Nutrition is not flashy. It's very methodical. It's very planned out, and it's very simplistic. And I think that, in my opinion, and I know we've talked about this in the past, what tends to happen is a lot of the insta-famous or insta-glamorous people that are in our industry don't have a very long shelf life. Because they make it about them and not about the results of their client. Is that something that you have experienced in the Australian community of, of fitness and strength and conditioning as well? 100%. Um, the true strength and conditioning coaches out there, which I guess now are the ones that are more so on the rants, and I guess the, they've sort of got that being their bonnet about the whole overnight success coaches is, is exactly that. It's, um, it's about them. It's about how they can – obviously, it's a business and opportunist and they make money. That's fine. But ultimately what happens is it either gives the true strength and conditioning coaches a bad name or it devalues their service, which is the biggest thing. And then they, the true strength and conditioning coach is almost gets pulled in and sucked into trying to compete with the online stuff or trying to match prices with these mass production um, programs, right. which ultimately devalues their service um, and devalues themselves. Um, and it's, it's a hard situation because the social media world obviously governs or seems to govern a lot of people's mindsets or what they think is, is the right way or, or, or the best way to do it. Uh, but yes, back to, back to what you're saying is like you have to do the hard reps and you have to do the dirty reps. And that's even coaches out there now, like anyone up and coming, is like it's not pretty to get to any goal set. Like very rarely do you see the overnight successes um and stuff like that and i think i did a video the other week it's basically like if you watch what the overnight successes are doing now or or even a, a true strength and conditioning coach that's established in the industry and you try and replicate what they're doing now it's back to the same thing you, you go wrong because that's not what they did to get there 100 percent. and it's the same as what the social media world of overnight they're, they're they're throwing off programs that they're currently doing or their coach give them so they're going to pass it on to the clients and then they realize that they can't actually apply it or don't understand it and don't get a result. And instead of teaching them what they're meant to do originally of the ground roots, build your base, build your foundations, learn how to move, learn how the basics of nutrition works, and then the sustainable success mounts off the back of that. It's, it's like it's an un, unrivaled platform for your success. Is work out. It's like anything. You do an apprenticeship before you get the, the trade, right? Strength training is the same. Nutrition is the same. Um, unless you're very blessed genetically. That's just the way it works. And right. if you try and shortcut it, the actual result becomes a shortcut result because it's short term. Now, 
I can't help but agree with what you're saying because when you did your video a number of days back and you were talking about that, you were talking about if you want the success of those that you admire, go back and look at the base of their program and see what they did to get to where they are. And there couldn't be a more clear example of that than the sport of bodybuilding right now. And even though you and I are not bodybuilders, we understand the sport, you know, we, it's, it's not a complicated world to, to evaluate, but everybody looks at say the current pros and they see what they're doing on Instagram and they're, they're do, like squeezing muscles and lightweights and doing a lot of stuff of that nature now as their careers have progressed. But no one saw that they were squatting 400 kilos for reps when they were trying to build that, you know, colossus frame of muscle that they eventually wanted to get to the Olympia with. And when you're confronted with that argument, or you're confronted with that, not even argument, but mindset from those people, how do you initiate the conversation to, to sort of steer them back to reality that, listen, GPP or anatomical alignment training is a fundamental. It may not be sexy and it may not be fucking going to be insta glamorous anytime soon, but how do you get people to, to tap into the science and practice of strength and conditioning as a coach nowadays when you're competing against this chaos glamorous side that we both know is bullshit? Okay. I think, and this is probably a tip for any coaches out there, is have be confident in your abilities is the first one. Now, the only time that you fall down and then have to have that big competeness is if you doubt what you're doing or you doubt your abilities to succeed as a coach. Um, and you know yourself, it's like going into arena of sport. If you know that you've done everything you can in possibility to get to the, to the finish line, that if the success doesn't come, it's okay. But you know you've done all the parts. I right. think coaching is exactly the same. If you hold your end up at the bargain and you communicate with them and you give them the best possible program or even adjust the program to actually get them to buy in along the way instead of just throwing everything out and going, I'm just going to do what they do, then you rest at ease. You're fine. You're happy for that client to go away. And sometimes you need that client to go and fail. Um, instead of lowering your standard or lowering what you need to do, because remember, they hired you for a job. So if you don't do your job properly and you just give them what they want, you're not doing your job and therefore right. your services suffered as well. So I think the confidence in your ability and the confidence that you're actually going to get the result long-term, and that's where I get back to like when we coach and you hire me for a job. Don't hire me for four weeks and expect the result of something for 36 weeks. Right, right. Because I can't do that. So if you come to a certain thing, it's like this is, and that's where as coaches you have to be transparent. Look, I can't do that in four weeks, but if it's a performance thing, look, we can probably do some sort of compensation effects. So it's not going to be long-term and we can do it, but that's only for some with a training age. When we go on the other side, it's like, no, this it's going to take 12 weeks to do this. Oh, sure, I can do it in four weeks and we can starve you and we can do all this fancy shit, but I'm telling you now, you'd be coming back or you'd be, you'd be spraying me later on that the results didn't work and that you're unhealthy and all this sort of stuff. But if that's what you wanted, that's what I gave you. Um, so basically, to come back of it all is just be confident as a coach and know what you're prescribing is the best thing for your client. And that's in itself is going to speak volumes for how you apply this is, you apply yourself to the situation, but also how that, that client's going to see you and that's going to be the buy-in. Um, if they come in telling you how they're going to train, then let them go train by themselves. If right. they're coming in and you want to train them the, the, or you know what's right, then stick, stick to your guns and, and be confident. And that comes back to you doing the time in the trenches and coaching the GPP clients to, to understand and be confident in your ability to know that long-term you're going to come out on top. See, and, and this is something that I think for those that are listening is extremely valuable. And it's, in my opinion, something that 
has always separated you from a lot of coaches I've met from all over the world because you approach strength and conditioning and personal training very much from the the logic side of application, meaning which, listen, this is what we need to do to get from A to B. Now, we can have a conversation about all the variables, and we can have conversations about all the bullshit that's out in the industry, but if you want to get from A to B, this is the process that has to be done. And that process may be different for each athlete that you work with or each client, and you have to make variable changes, but that's experience. That's, as you say, going through the apprentice stages before you become a tradesman, becoming a master of your craft. And when you look at it that way, it gives you a lot more credibility to the whole strength and conditioning community. One, you're leaving ego at the door. You know that you have a job to do and that job has certain requirements and those are the requirements that you are going to do. Two, you, and this is where a lot of young coaches fall. You don't allow the, you know, the inmates to run the asylum. And, and that's a really important thing because if you allow your client who at the end of the day is giving you money for expertise to dictate how that day is going to go, you have already not only wasted their money, but done them a massive disservice as a coach in the worst way possible. You are failing them for the sake of friendship. And how do you give advice or discern between those two? Like, because you want to be someone that they can hang around with and enjoy but sometimes you got to drop the hammer a little bit and make it clear that this is a coach athlete or mentor mentoree situation that they're in. You're there to lead them. You're not there to allow them to walk aimlessly through the force. As, as, as a father, I'm not a parent, obviously, but I'm guessing the way I was brought up and the way I'd bring up is like, sometimes the father's not going to be like, you're going to hate him. Like at times, me and my dad argue, right? Yeah. But in essence, he's just trying to do the best thing for my future trying to set me up in the right direction um, and trying, I guess, basically do the same thing. is the best I possibly I can be. Um, and our coaching is the same. It's not going to be pretty. You're not going to be liked. It's some of the things you do. Right. But if you're doing your job, sometimes you're setting them up for success. Now, if you want to be the best friend coach, then yeah, that's okay. But maybe you should charge at a rate to be the best friend and your training is going to resemble that and the results are going to resemble that. And you probably keep your client because you're not charging the exuberant amount of money. Right. Now, if you want to go on the other end of the scale and you want to charge what your service is valued at or what you actually think is valued at, then you have to, you, you're not going to be liked at times. You're going to do things they don't want to do because that's the thing that's going to get them results. Right. They're obviously doing the things they like to do. They obviously do the things that are easy, and that's not what gets results, unfortunately. And coach, coaching isn't pretty. Like, let's be honest. Like, like even you know yourself in the weight room, a lot of the time you're doing the shitty movements over and over again that are going to suck on days and some days are good. They're not going to be the glamorous circus on Instagram. They're not going to be the, the things that, like, you know what I mean? Like, even with the fighters, right, we do some cool circuits with them. But that, that's not every day. Right. And they can only do that by doing the fundamentals first. And that's, that's basically how it is. I couldn't agree more. And it's something that a lot of people don't understand is the fact that uh, Ryan Fanley and I were talking about this, and I, and I mentioned it is he had had a conversation with Ed Cohn, you know, world powerlifting, you know, greatest of all time. And Ed Cohn had made the comment that, you know, Instagram is causing injuries. 
And and basically what the statement is, is because everybody's trying to do the big shit and everybody's trying to do the the incredible stuff that people are getting fucked up left and right. And no one's backing off and no one's doing an anatomical alignment phase, GPP stuff, and, and nobody's doing the single leg stuff. And, and no one's bulletproofing their bodies anymore to be able to tolerate the shitstorm that they want to put themselves in for the sake of fame in the weight room. And you know what's really funny about it, Brad, is I was thinking about this recently, is how many people, um, and now I'm going to prelude this statement with a positive. I'm really glad that CrossFit has reintroduced barbells to the weight room. I, I really am. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that CrossFit is now the reason why my gym has six squat racks instead of one. I'm, I'm happy about that. But there's a lot of people that have only ever done CrossFit because when they decided, decided to buy a personal training package, that's where they went. And it's amazing how many people I see now that they only know CrossFit, they get injured, and then they're doing CrossFit-esque, which we know to be mostly Olympic lifting or compound movements, to <laughs> rehab themselves. Right. Like, and, and, it, and it's creating this, this disaster. So when, when you eventually get those people and they will come to you because they will be out of options, how do you retrain their mind to, do you just tell them flat out that what they've been doing is bullshit or, or do you, you know, sort of coach them into it a little bit and be like, okay, listen, I'm not going to give you tough love today, but let me sort this out for you. Like, why are the fundamentals so important? Hundred percent, and like anything as a trainer, like sometimes you can thank them for thank, thank CrossFit for giving you a client. That's always a good start sometimes. Right. But um, basically, you have to go on their personality from there, right? So that's where we come back to to science and then actual coaching the athlete. If you don't understand your client, you, it doesn't matter how much you know. If you can't communicate with them on their level, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Um, whether it's an athlete or, or just a walking off the street, if you can't communicate with them and be on their level and know what makes them tick. It doesn't matter. So you, some clients who come in and it's like, oh, look, it's not the end of the world. We can fix you up. Nah, this isn't wrong. And you don't even mention CrossFit. And then the other ones, you can say, look, what you're doing is wrong. You can be straight up with them depending on their personality and say, no, yep. you're wrong. This is how it is. This is how you're going to fix it. And they're okay with that because they're a direct client. They're, they're the high personality of the front of the brain where it's saying, tell me what I need to know and tell me how I've got to do it. Right. Right. And then you have the other ones where you've got to babysit them a little bit and tell them everything's okay. But that's you being a coach. And that's the end of it. And that's another part of coaching where people are, are forgetting now. They, they just go to science and, and get all the degrees or get all the things, but they don't coach reps or they don't communicate with people. And even in today's world, they don't like communicating with no. people. They just want to be online. They don't want to have a conversation. They don't want to have conflict. And they don't want to actually get into a point where it's like, you know what, we can sit down and we can discuss it and then we get to a result. Or if we have a butt of opinions, it's like, oh, no, we don't like each other. But that's bullshit. It's total bullshit, point, right? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's, it's like picking up a phone or like them sort of things. They're gone. The actual interaction with other people is is, is starting to be scar as, as a, like few and far between. Right. Which is it, it doesn't allow for any progression or even personal development. But basically back to where you get back from is – once you establish what the way you can attack that client, not attack which is the wrong word, but attack the situation with that client and understand the personality, then you can put your system in place. The system never changes, does it? No. It's just how you format the way you go about it. So for them, they come in and like, oh, I like CrossFit because I want, I feel like I trained. Okay, that's no worries. We can do a lot of structural balance um, and a lot of recorrecting the structurals. 
and the, the muscle firing and, and activation that you, you did wrong. You don't even have to tell them it's wrong. You just do your way. Yep. And at the end, you give the prowler where they can't hurt themselves, right? Because that's right. what they want. Exactly. Like, and we've talked about this a lot. It's it's breaking down a workout so it appeases all the masters without getting into a situation where anyone is the wiser, right? Like, right. you know, we've talked about utilizing, okay, so CrossFit uses, you know, say snatch complexes or snatch AMRAPs for triple extension, full body exhaustion and, and all this chaotic shit. But you, you hit the nail right on the head. You can do that with a prowler. And like we've always joked, the worst thing that happens is they just lay down on the ground when they can't prowler anymore. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And that's, and that's the thing of like a coach. Like even what you said is like the Instagram's hurting people because they want to do the – the coaches want them to train for their videos, not yeah. for themselves. You know what I mean? Oh, come do this. I'll video you doing this. It's got nothing to do with the program, but we're going to hit a one RM today because I need a social media feed. You know, that's my, not right. You know what my fucking favorite pet peeve is right now is you'll see a coach or an Instagram page of a gym or a coach, and they'll be showing all their athletes doing all this stuff, right? And and the athlete may look amazing. Shit, the athlete might even be famous, and the gym or the coach doesn't actually talk about the athlete or give the athlete's credentials in the post at all. So like you're watching this athlete or this, you know, client do something really impressive, or maybe she looks incredible or he looks incredible. And your, your thought is like, wow, who is this person? I want to find out. No mention doesn't exist. But that the coach, right? Yeah. And that's the biggest thing when, even when they do that ready or say they do give a mention to a client and what's always leading my client, my, my my athlete they're not your athlete they hired you you're their you know coach I mean? yes yeah. Yeah, the, yeah you're their coach that's as, that's as far as it goes yep um but it's about like that it's, it's my client my athlete i did this for them it's like no you did your job and that's it that's what you're paid to do yeah congratulations and, you've held up your end of a of an uh of an uh, agreement or a bargain exactly yep. yeah yeah 100%. um and that and that goes back like, when you go back to, to how the program design is, you, you have the way you've got to do it. It's just whatever goes first is your priority. So when they come in and they say this is wrong with them, if they're injured, that's their priority. If they're stressed, then reduce the stress, whatever it may be, goes first and then you lay it back. So basically what you said is that's how you, you sort of build into a GPP client. I'm going to focus on what you need at the start of the session. And what you least need is got to be the back end of the session. But if that makes you happy, we're going to do it. See, you make a, a really good point, and it's also something that Brad Davidson talks about in his Metabolic Reset book. And you're going to have clients come in that are super A-type, high-producing. Now, everyone always hears the word A-type, and they think of world beaters, right? But the problem, yeah. A-types are also people that may have some serious fucking hormonal issue. They may be overstressed cortisol through the roof, adrenals are shut down because they drink too much coffee, don't sleep enough, uh, work too much. So you're going to get those people, and both yourself and, and, and Brad have said this to me, that those clients, they don't need more fire to their fire. They may need the exact opposite initially. And a, div a, div a diversified coaching system is somebody that can see Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. A-type come in and be like, hmm. This person isn't going to have any success if I put them on five sets of 50-meter prowler sprints. They're probably going to quit or they're probably going to get sick. So when you're doing that initial intake personality report with these guys, 
What would be, in your opinion, sort of how do you transition some of those like super fucking stressed, really miserable, burnt out people into your program? Because eventually you're going to get them to the athletic level because I've seen you do it. But how do you take that, that, that broken business person and sort of put them back together? Okay. So the easiest way, well, the way I find the easiest way is you've got to give them something that they think they're still working hard at. Right. So it doesn't mean, like you said, the 50-meter prowler. So people always think a hard session is I can't feel my legs session. <laughs> yes. So what I, I do yeah. is just make them do whatever they can to exert themselves at a given point. So we go back all the way onto the other side of the energy system. Do We go to ATP, right? So short bursts. I might even get them to just jump as high as they can for 10 seconds. Right. Okay, no lag date. But all I'm after is the intensity, right? That's all they're after. And if I can give them something so a lot of people like in the, in the world – so I'm just giving them something they want. So a lot of people go, let's squat heavy or something like that. Well, I'll take them away from that because I just want them to get the intensity and then I can do some work with them later. But if I squat them heavy, it's not the same intense because they're not strong yet, right? So, But what I can do is get them to jump and try and touch the roof. Right Now, all I'm after is the intensity out of it, right? The hormonal effect of that. So they're super stressed. Obviously, the testosterone and, and that side of the hormonal function is got to be lower or it's got to be minimal and sparingly through the day. So if I can get some sort of intensity without having to load a heavy barbell, because if they're already highly stressed, they're already highly injury prone. Right. So I do something that's not going to hurt them. Right. And then they're gassed out through the session. Uh, not through the session, sorry, through that, that jump and touch a roof. And the other thing might be just a medicine ball slam, but it's always short and focused. Right. Now, I could walk them back and forth, say, for instance, to how to do it. And I could say, right, we're going to do it for 15 minutes. But they, their 50-meter prowler turns into a 50-meter walk now. Yep. And they just go back and forth. And that's, that's how I start to progress them. But then I can squat them after that, but at a lesser load. Yep. And they're okay with that because they've done a bit of work. They feel like they've already trained. See, um, that's a huge person. point. Yep. That's a huge point is the psychology of, you know, because inevitably you are balancing it with do they feel like they're paying for success? Especially exactly. with these A types, right? Do they feel like they are getting their money's worth in that session? And and you're balancing that psychology with them very well. And you have to. You have to. And when you start addressing these types of clients or athletes in general or your you know, your your fighters at the highest level, because I know you've gotten to work with some guys that have, have competed at the highest level in the mixed martial arts game, is what point do you switch off the coaching hat and put on the nutritionist hat? Because I know even though, you know, some people will hire out for nutrition, you as a weight class power athlete have had quite a bit of success in your own endeavors with manipulating body fat to maximize performance. You have to because you compete in the under 200s and world's strongest man. So if you're walking around heavy, you have to cut a little bit to get down to what about 90K competitive weight, right? So how do you do that with your athletes and, and what are like, be as, as frank as you want. Do you adhere to a system? Or are you like, you know what, I'll use whatever system works. Like what is your sort of take on that side of the paradigm? Whatever system works always is that the thing. So there's no one, one size fits all, um, especially with athletes, right? Because the personality comes in, the psychological aspect of it comes in, but your system doesn't change. Right. It's just which days have which one on. That's all it is, right? Because at the same, uh, whichever way you look at it, performance is always optimal, but recovery is the second. Or most of the time, recovery should be first, and then the performance will come as a byproduct. And that's one of the biggest things 
like you said, with a nutritional hat or coaching hat, they're always both on because it's got to be mindful. As, as a coach, you have to be mindful. If you're, if you're an athletic coach, you have to be mindful of what nutrition they have because what you prescribe has to match. Right. You can't go and go, I'm going to prescribe this and then not worry about nutrition because you might be overselling your part and you might be, have to be the one to pull it back. But as far as putting a nutritional hat on, always coach the basic principles, say from the GPP client, they get the basic principles. I don't want to overload them with a whole lot of nutrition of the scientific side of it. Sometimes, unless they really want to know, you tell them. To the high-level athletes, so basically the nutritional hat's always on because I have to be mindful of the performance. As soon as the performance starts to suffer, the chance of injury goes up, the chance of poor performance goes up, and obviously they don't get paid, I don't get paid. Right, that's simple. right. Uh, um, See, that, yeah, that's really interesting, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I think you said something, I really want to repeat it before we lose it, is there are certain circumstances where performance follows recovery. And we always think of it from a coaching perspective is that we perform, we perform, and then we recover. We perform, we perform, and then we recover. But for a lot of people, their performance follows restoration. So if, if, they're, if you can't identify that they're overstressed or under, under uh, nutrient consumption levels that are needed for restoration, that the performance will never come if restoration is not first addressed. Um, and so when do you, or how did you sort of fall into that mindset? Because it's something that you said that should really be repeated is how do you determine, or when do you notice that the performance is a byproduct of their rest? Uh, well, it should be always number one. So back to what you said originally from the start is logic. If you think logic, right? Any training program, what do we have at the end of it? If we want to perform, we have a deload. So we have a restoration process. So what's different between session to session? Right. There's none. Right, and if we're going to go from session to session, the whole idea is to get better. So if not recovering from session to session, sometimes the performance isn't going to be better in the next session. Now, with athletes, especially on the mental side of it, they need to know as they progress through a camp that they're getting better, unless to a point where we're going to go through an overreaching stage, which sometimes more so on the barbell, barbell or strength side of the athletes, mm-hmm. where more they're given sports like the field sports or the combat sports, we don't always go into an overreaching period where we say, we're just going to flog you for the sake of it. If you're going to do that, it's like at the front end of the camp right. because you want the confidence to be spiked at the back end. So as, as a such, that mindset or that logic of restoration comes first before performance should be always on. Um, unless, like you say, we, we go into like a, a weightlifting coach or a powerlifting, there's going to be a point where our sessions are going to suck right? because that, that's our sport. And we know that the suck is necessary for the good. Right. Where, you have to right. get through that that period of training to absolutely maximize super compensation. Exactly. Where in the fight game or field sports, because it's so skill specific, the skill sessions have to always be crisp. They always have to be pretty crisp. The conditioning can suck, yes. Yeah. Right? The weights can suck sometimes, yes. But as far as the skill set is is, is they can never suck. It always has to progress better. You can, might do it under fatigue. You might do it under numerous partners or uh, like um, in a fatigue state where something's going to fail. But yep. the 80% of the session has to be crisp. So whilever they're in a camp, those sessions are always occurring. So recovery has to always be number one. And it's like any sort of coaching. Fix one sort of element and normally fixes four. Try to fix the four elements, you never ever fix the one element. And so recovery uh, or in the nutritional aspect of restoration and all that 
normally is always given or go to to fix multiple problems. Um, see, it's, it's never failed. See, Simple as that. To me, this is A plus material because as a coach, it, it's something that that I've always just tried to do with myself and my own athletic career and definitely with athletes I've worked with. But you said something that absolutely gets pounded home for me because when you're looking at skill specific sport and, you know, fighters is your example, rugby league is your example. Um, I can expand it into the NFL, hockey, baseball, doesn't matter. What people have to understand is that athlete, their career, their paycheck, and their livelihood is 100% determined by their ability to play the sport that they're in. They don't get any fucking recognition for how much they bench. They don't. It, even in the NFL, after that combine test is done and they do the 100 kilo or 225 bench test, no one gives a shit. I know that for a fact, having worked in the NFL, they, it doesn't matter. All that matters is do they play the game really well at that level? And hundred percent, right? And, and when you say that they're at that 80% of their reps have to be crisp, there's, there's no bigger truth, especially in camp when they could get cut for their inability to play well. So if you go out, for example, and you are smashing guys with massive volume in the weight room in the NFL because you think you're going to make everybody five fucking kilos heavier and you're going to have the biggest, ripped, strongest guys on the field and your guys start playing like shit. And I mean legitimately playing like shit because they can't touch their toes. They're so sore. They will fucking hammer you as a coach. And not only will you lose their confidence, you'll lose their respect and they will stop coming in. They will find a way for you to go away. And yeah. and I think that that is paramount. You know, we're not talking about somebody here that doesn't have an open-ended training schedule, meaning which you got uh, Bobby, whoever, that comes in that works and just wants to get uh, a better physique. If your only goal is physique composition change and hypertrophy, then your reward is being a sore motherfucker 24-7 that you can brag about. And and that is the majority of people that are coaching nowadays in the private sector is they chase pain and they chase hypertrophy soreness or DOMS and they use that as their benchmark of actual success. And that does not apply to sports at all. Nah. Nah. Not definitely not. Definitely that not. Even, that even goes back to exactly what you're saying. It's like – when you do it the way I see it, right, is everyone wants to justify their existence as a coach, which is fine. But the only way you exist in is if they excel at their given goal. Yep. So back to what you said, their given goal is not the weight room for an athlete. And that even gets you back to like testing, right? The only test that you, to, in my opinion, right, that you can truly do if they're a field sport or a combat sport, let's just talk that one. Yep. You're not talking to strength sports where it's a bit different or even like um, you're sprinting where you, your broad jumps might come into it. But they don't need these exuberant amounts of tests to say, okay, now we're going to squat one RMU and now you should be a better fighter. Right. Or show me your broad jump or your jump and then we'll see how, how well you fight. It's, it's irrelevant. Like the only test that you should do is like an injury prevention test, which is basically your structural assessment after each fight. You sit down with them, you communicate with them, and then you talk to your other coaches and you find out where they need to improve on. Right. Now, me watching a fight, I can have my opinion, but technically that's not my job. I gather all the information back from both coaches and they say, right, maybe his fitness cocked out a bit. Okay, okay, what are you doing on fitness-wise? Okay, now I can have an opinion. 
Right. Um, right. He, he probably wasn't strong enough in the wrestle. Okay, let's look at this. We can do this. What was it? Was his grip strength? Was it, you know, was it the hip strength or turnover? Then we can do something. To, or was it a technical issue? Yep. They are the only true tests that you should be doing, in my opinion, to, the, to those athletes that isn't a barbell-related sort of performance issue. Because once you start basing your training on how well you can get them to lift, then the whole principle goes away. Right. Whole, we're, just, we're just a tool to like make them better perform at the sport. So if we need more posterior dominant, that's all you do. It doesn't matter what they lifted. The point is they're better when they left. That's yes. all it is. Yes. But when you start chasing numbers, then the form breaks down anyway, and you're not actually engaging or training the structure that you actually need for them to perform. 100%. And you're, it couldn't be more correct because when people start to use a barbell 100% as their predictor of athletic performance, they by default have removed themselves from the logical progression of coaching. And we've seen this a lot. We've seen a lot of guru coaches in the private sector trying to sell books and whatever, and they'll have these arbitrary things like – a hammer thrower, bobsleigh, football player, if they can do A, B, and C in the weight room, they have the potentiation to be in the NFL or the Olympics. And you're like, okay, so if I get to those numbers, I have the potential strength capacity to be in the Olympics. Well, that's okay, and it's all well and good until you get to the Olympics and you meet athletes that have been there multiple times, and they're not doing any of that shit. It, right. And you're like, okay, so then you have a conversation with them in real life and you're like, well, what do you mean you don't have a fucking 200 kilo clean? I thought that was the standard for 80 meters in the discus or in the hammer throw or 70 meters in the discus. And they're like, well, no, what the standard for our system from Germany is, is do I lift or do I not lift based on how my grip strength test was that day? Or I do a standing broad jump test after I warm up. And if I'm so many percentage lower than I normally am, we know that we don't do any heavy CNS work that day. And you're like, right. Oh fuck, that has nothing to do with the weight room. That has to do with human movement and athletic potentiation. And yeah, you're like performance. performance, right? If they can't move, they don't lift. If they can't perform, they don't train. They need restoration. So performance returns and it just pulls you right back full circle. Now yeah. move, moving away from that, just a touch, because I think people will be like, holy fuck, my brain is saturated right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Let's talk a little bit just about your own training again with the under 200s um, in the strongest man competitions that you've gotten into. When you start looking at your own training for that, and hopefully this will give some people some enlightenment, just some basic structure stuff. How do you set up your your four days right now in terms of what lifts are you doing on what days and how do you balance your energy systems with some of the, the medley stuff you do or the more dynamic-based training? How do you set up your week? Okay, so the week always sets up as uh, – so I've got eight sessions, right? And then from the eight sessions – the, whatever the priority is going to be. So, um, for instance, now, so overhead uh, on the pushing days, they get both days. So the only accessories become more of a horizontal push, okay? Yep. Because obviously that's a priority. Um, and that's basically how I set it up. I, I peel it back. So out of the eight days, normally there's always five events. Yep. So sometimes an event's going to go missing off there or it's going to be a supplemental exercise where the event's not as specific. So whatever my strongest event is, that's the one that gets pushed to the side. That's right. the one that's sort of like a lot of the other events may increase that event. It may not, but I'll have to be okay with that because I have to 
cover you have to cover a lot of bases. So when you're doing that, you have to be okay that one thing is going to be left out or one thing's not going to get as much time. But then as an athlete, you then well, for myself, I decide whether um, in perspective if someone else was designed it, are you that far gone on that event that you just let it go and then you hopefully just do good on the day and concentrate on being better at the other events? Or you're sort of good at it and you know you can pick it up and therefore you can grab a few points and then some of the events, do you understand what I'm saying there yep. where it's like you, you come to a point where do I have to prioritize it or do I just let it's too far gone now? I'll concentrate on being really good and hopefully that event doesn't come up sometimes right. um, and you get through the day. Yep. Um, and through them, so basically it's always a heavy or dynamic lift in the morning and then more of a volume-ish type or conditioning session in the afternoon, so, basically because of Sorry, okay, you might actually, you're probably about to answer this right now, but I wanted to, you to break that down a little bit in terms of, you know, basically setting up CNS stimulation and workout one for the day, and then you come back and do more volume-based, whatever that represents in your second session. Yep. So go ahead and break that down a little bit. I know it's something that I introduced to you, but you have long since taken it and progressed it into a whole new system in a, of application. So when you do it, Talk about doing a CNS morning and a volume-based afternoon. Okay. So basically, uh, so, so for instance, we'll do this. So it's eight weeks out. The CNS side of it would be more the barbell movement in the morning. Okay. Right. So not so general specific to the sport. Even though deadlift, a squat, um, or a press could be it, but it's more generalized strength in the morning to get the high CNS. Um, and it may even not be specific at all. So it could be a power clean, it could be a jump, whatever it may be to start. And then you go into your primary movement. Um, the aspect of CNS potentiation has always been ingrained in my programs, basically because I think it's a fundamental of athleticism. Right. You start to go too far to the barbell, I lose too much of my athleticism, and then I become too rigid, injury prone. And the it's almost like you become a rock. And I don't, as as a strong man, I can't become that. As a powerlifter, that's okay. Yep. You're not you're not in a dynamic fashion. So I like to always ingrain that. And for me mentally, it's always better to feel knowing that if I have to run 100 meters fast, I still got it. Or if I need to run jump throw, I still have it. Got it. Now, in the afternoon, I'll go more into the event training um, this far out and be more in a conditioning style workout. So whether it's the ATP system, uh, lactate threshold system, or an aerobic based um, conditioning session, depending what I feel is necessary. So there's no paradigm where it's like, okay, it has to be ATP, then we've got to do a bit of lactate, then we've got to finish aerobic, or vice versa, it has to be aerobic phase one, then lactate, then ATP. It's what I need at that given time. Got it. So for instance, um, but then to just break it down, we don't really train lactate for the bodybuilders out there or even the strongmen as my lactate session. It's always to a, a lactate power sort of threshold, 20 seconds, got and then it. I'll rest in another 20 seconds. So basically, a typical workout could be, for instance, if I want to build capacity up, um, could be a monster dumbbell press uh, every minute on the minute to each arm, and then, say, a strongman sled pull for upper body. And that's just building capacity in the lactate threshold stage without actually touching into it. Does that make sense? Yep, makes perfect sense. Right. Then, say, four weeks out, the priorities change. So it'll be specific to what my specific movements always go first in the morning. I still have CNS potentiation, which may be a jump. It could be just even a skill session where it's like highly cognitive and highly transformative. So it's like the brain and the body has to follow suit in a very skill-specific way. Got it. Um, and, and then I'll move into the specific movement of the of the event. So it could be stones. It could be log, clean, and press. And that's just a sole focus. 
Now, depending on the rep scheme for the day, so if it's a 60-second event, I build up slowly over the last four weeks. So I could do a 20-second, four sets of 20 seconds on the log. Then I might move to four sets of 40 seconds. And then as I get closer to it, it'd be like two sets of a minute or something like that, where it's very specific. Then in the afternoon, will be more the barbell um, energy sort of system, work in the afternoon to complement it. So if it's a 60-second event, I still have to work into the 10, 12 reps and try and get conditioning for the muscle away from the ATP. So then we start looking at even global to um, local sort of conditioning where we can still have a very high ATP sessions for the week. Right. But locally, I need the, the conditioning of the muscles to actually support that structure. So just because I'm very strong on the deadlift at 300, say for instance, but the car deadlifts at 200 for a minute, doesn't mean I'll be any better than someone else. And so that's, that's a really important point. Right. Like, and, yeah. that, and people forget that they, they think that just because you got a 300 kilo dead or a three times body weight dead, that you're just going to go down to 70% and rock it out for a minute. But that's just not the truth, especially yeah, when right. you start looking at energy specific stuff. So you exactly. have to maintain that, that, that lactate training in there to be able to get through and actually put up the numbers to win an event. Yeah. Exactly. So, and then the only trick that you have through the week is, like you know yourself, is we don't actually push hard into lactate. So as soon as the set gets lactate and then the next set gets lactate straight after it, yeah. I call it for the day. Because what happens then? We're back onto recovery. If I gas myself, say on a Tuesday, I'm sacrificing Thursday, Friday. Absolutely. I, I can't have that. Absolutely. So, so your planning of sessions will always be, if it's going to be more of a lactate session, it's on a Tuesday because I've got Wednesday off. Yep. Or the very high lactate is going to be the Friday because I've got Saturday, Sunday off. Really? And that's the way that's the way the sessions through the week have to do it. You always have to write it out as a full week, plug in what you need to do, and then focus the harder sessions on it that's got a rest day straight after. Yep. And it's amazing because so many people think that you can tap into lactate over and over and over and that there's no uh, consequence to that because a lot of people – uh, you know, they get to lactate, say on an assault bike, or they get uh, to lactate doing submaximal weight. And they think, oh, I didn't go heavy, I can do this again tomorrow. But that system doesn't recover that quickly, nor does the trauma to the systemic ef- effect that has on the body. Right. No. And the other part that people forget is that, okay, even though we correlate sympathetic nervous system and CNS work to heavy singles or heavy maximal loads, or rate of execution. So you know, med ball throw for height or distance. That's also very CNS demanded. And we know that if we're too sympathetic too often and we can't get back to parasympathetic or rest and relax or rest and restore states, that we start to overtrain. But people also have to understand that the CNS gets hammered, gets absolutely hammered from constant lactate work. 100%. 100%. It gets hammered from that because it's so stressful. And the body goes... Go ahead. Yep. Especially someone that's strong. Especially if someone's strong or they can train very yes. well. Yes. You know what I mean? Because they're going to push through the first uh, sign of lactate and they're going to go to the exhausted side of it. Yep. And once that happens, that's only one set in. And sometimes you only get one set, but you're done. Absolutely done. And people, well, you know, a good example um, for people that are listening that can relate to this is it is the difference between a guy like Brock Lesnar in the UFC and a guy like. Jose Aldo, it's when you look at how their bodies function and how much energy and heat they produce per repetition, there's no comparison. And people think, well, yeah, he's just a bigger version of a small guy. It should all be equal. 
No, it's just not how it fucking works. It just isn't how it works. When muscles create energy, they create heat. And when that muscle is big and that muscle mass is strong, it produces more heat. And that heat is exhausting. And that heat requires huge amounts of blood flow. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's the same thing that I always used to say with athletes. Just because someone has a 700-pound squat or a 320-kilo squat – it does not mean that they can train more at 180 kilos or 190 kilos. It doesn't mean that just because they can squat a ton, they can squat more often. It, it, the body doesn't work that way. It's That is just their potential, but you still have to govern it against the fact that they're skin and bone. That's it. That's 100%. Yeah, how do you got to take you got to take into account the damage that it does, or like you say, it's like you you might have a set volume for the day, and someone might say, okay, um, you did three, you got six ton squats for the day. Um, I don't really use a volume approach like that, or, or a, a kilo weight. Yep. I always govern off what the body can do, or what it's given days and how you feel. Yeah, but say you do that, but then you have someone that can deadlift, like you say, and, and someone might take twenty sets to get to six hundred, right, uh, or six ton or whatever it is, right. But then you have someone that's strong and comes and does two sets and they get it there. And they do ten to twelve reps. Yep. You got the factor. Which one's more fatiguing? The ten to twelve reps is always going to be way more fatiguing. One hundred percent. The accumulated trauma. I remember uh, back in nineteen ninety eight, I was training with Shane Hammond, and Shane Hammond at the time was the U.S.'s best heavyweight Olympic lifter. Um, but he had come over from powerlifting, and at the time, he had the world record for raw squat at I think a thousand thirty eight. You know, so he was he was extremely strong. Um, whatever that is, 500 kilos, you know, 480 kilo raw squat. So, so what was interesting about this is he was training for the Olympics at the time. And we were training at this shit gym at this big, uh, uh, track and field, um, basically track and field camp. And he, he pulls out his, his paper for the day and he has 10 doubles at 55%. That was his workout. And so we're talking about it. And I'm like, what do you got today? He's like, ah, I got five doubles, 55%. I'm like, well, how much is that? And he's like, for me right now, it's right around 290 kilos. <laughs> shit. Right? shit, right? And I'm like, okay. And so he does his first set, does his second set. And then, you know, he's got seven, you know, eight sets left at this point. And I'm like, how does it feel? And he's like, you know what? It just, it's too heavy today. And this is only 55%, right? So to, to an untrained brain, they're like, what do you mean that's too heavy? That's, that's half of your ability. It's still 600 fucking pounds. It's a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight. And some days the body just goes, hey, I got tendons, ligaments, and shit in here. We need to like check yourself a little bit. And I remember him doing one more set at 55% and shutting it down for the day because it was too heavy. Too heavy for the day. Too heavy for the day, man. The perceived effort was way beyond what it should have been because of a bunch of extreme, uh, of ex circumstances outside of his control. You know exactly, and then that's the thing is like you have you have your your piece of paper that tells you what you got to do. Then you have to coach off the back of that. Yep. Um, and that's where like we get back to coaching is like he might have grind through that, and then all of a sudden the reps start look shitty, yep. um, and then turns an injury in, or he starts to coach a bad form into himself. Yep. And becomes a habit. And at that amount of sets, that's when habits do start to form. Absolutely. And, and I've noticed in my own training and training athletes that it is amazing how quickly a bad habit establishes under incredible psychological focus and distress. 
right? 100%. So when you're just fucking, it, fucking around, a bad habit sometimes doesn't show up. But when you're in the zone and you, a bad habit shows up, wow, does it stick. It sticks. And then it plays in your head. And then all of a sudden, the mental battle comes back again. And you forget about actually training. And you become anxious before you get there. Is my brace going to hold up today? You know what I mean? Or no, no, I forgot about holding my back tight. And then all of a sudden, that game starts to play in and we forget about just lifting. Yep. 100%. Well, one last thing I wanted you to just sort of talk a, a bit about from your own perspective is, you know, you're a very lean power athlete for your weight class. So you're carrying a lot of muscle mass. What do you do nutritionally for your own training that allows you to balance out huge power requirement as well as maintain a certain body composition to be able to stay in a weight class sport? Okay, yeah, sort of skipped over it before about um, that, so we'll touch it now. Basically, um, I run high calorie days on the four days that I train. Yep. Um, the two days that I, the three days that I don't train, um, I intermittent fast to tell you the truth. Yep. And that doesn't mean I wait all day, but because of the amount of calories that I do take in on the on the four days, I do give me my digestive system a rest. Yep. It's that simple. So a basic day, say for instance a Monday, right? Uh, upon awakening, um, depending on time, but it's a, a protein and fat source meal. Yep. Um, and I find that that works for me. That's not for everyone, but it works for me. Um, then I'll eat again before I train. So it's always two meals before I train in the morning and I always train at a set sort of time. So my schedule allows that, which is around a 9.30, 10.30 mark. Um, again, protein, fat source before that. Um, and basically, the reason why I don't need to have carbs before I train is that first session is more CNS-based. There's not a lot of volume in it. And it's more for the neurotransmitter to, to that the way my brain set up my personality, it responds to the meat and fat yep. before training. Same. Um, same. It's just how it is. Like different people are different, right? So that's the whole thing. From there, um, a shorter session, I don't take any carbs in through session. The carbs will come after it. So straight after that, there's a big digestion of carbs. Um, then the post meal after that on a two day session will be carbs again. So post workout shakes carbs, and then post workout again is is protein and carbs. Then the next meal before the pre-learning session, the afternoon session, is going to be a meat and fat, uh, a protein fat source again. Obviously, wire the brain back up, get it prepared for training, get the head back in it because there's numerous times I don't feel like training that second session, right. but it's got to be done. Got to be done. Um, got to be done, right? And that's why we're back to the eight-week preps instead of 12 on the two sessions, but yep. that's, that's another conversation. Post-workout, same format again. So post-workout with carbs, the meal after carbs again, um, but then... If there's one meal before bed, it's carbs again. Got it. So you can see a lot of carbs, right? So what that does on the unfolding day again, so what I do to stay lean, that last meal before dinner on the second day, which is normally the second day is always the upper body day, Yep. I take the last carbs out, and it's basically just a, a, a protein meal before bed Got it. Um, if, with fats, okay? Then the next day, um, intermittent fast, only till about 10.30, 11, depending. Once my sessions are done in the morning, and then I'll go meat and fat. So that day is a full high-fat day. Uh, no carbs till before bed, obviously. Um, being with my neurotransmitter makeup too and my profile, carbs before bed helps me sleep. It's that simple. Yep. If I uh, say for Tuesday nights, having fat before bed, I stay awake for an hour to two hours before. Absolutely. Yep. It's just how it is. Um, but I'm okay with that over the short period because now coming into comp, I have to be more weight conscious of, of setting the body up. And hormonally, fast before bed is not a bad thing. Right. It's just that you have to try and get yourself to sleep. Yep. Um, and then so that's Wednesday becomes that intermittent fast, say to 11 o'clock. Then the meat and fats come in, so higher fats. 
through the day. And I think that's another reason why the fat side of it does keep me up on Tuesdays because I don't have a whole lot of fats through the day. That when they do get them, it does exemplify things when, when I do digest in. Um, but the whole point of the intermittent fasting is to try and clear the digestion out, give it a rest from the higher calories on the other two days. And all I do in that, that morning period is drink a lot of water. Yep. So I try and get a, a big flushing system happen. Um, and then from there, I repeat Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is the same. Sunday, though, I'll go to probably about two meals before I go to bed where it's high carbs, almost cheap meals on a Sunday yep. before that. And that's just a, a recharge, refresh. Um, and Saturday, Sunday is loose nutrition. It's not as clean as what we say clean. It's pretty much like we're talking processed foods, eating out, sort of stuff like that. Yep. And that's just the sanity side of it on Saturday, Sunday. And then we roll back through um, another week. And that's pretty much how it rolls. And that's pretty much what we've done a long time ago. We we're working together and we we're training pretty much the same sort of system that we use now. Um, that change was not broken. No, I agree 100%. And that's such a brilliant way to do it because it's it's easy and it's clean. And you're not over-exaggerating anything. You're keeping things where they need to be. You're looking at the system and just addressing the needs. And... You know, it's it's interesting having this conversation with you is it just reiterates the fact that how thought out, methodical, and well-planned your approach is to coaching, strength, and conditioning, and human performance. And for me, it's been an awesome an awesome conversation. I've had a chance to write down quite a few notes from your, from your stuff because it, it reminds me of things to keep thinking about, and, and that's huge. And before I let you go, what is the easiest way – for someone to reach out to you that wants to either work with you, just pick your brain, do a consult if they don't live in Australia, or better yet, get into your training and actually get to work with you at the Triple X Academy. Okay, so the easiest way is any social media platform. So Brad Soper, obviously on Facebook, Brad Soper Strength, if you want my athlete page. Uh, Instagram is just School of Strong, Brad. Um, school, uh, sorry, School of Strong. So school underscore uh, of underscore strong underscore. Um, any message through that, that platform's easy. Um, and then obviously my email, which is brad at schoolofstrong.com.au. Um, I'm just redoing my website, which will be schoolofstrong.com.au also, and that should be live this weekend awesome. again. Um, and that's pretty much the easiest ways. And on the back of that, mate, it's been, it's been a, a pleasure and um, honoured to be, to be on your podcast, mate. Obviously, you mentored me for a long period of time. Um, and basically, all the concepts and, and, and logic as, as all developed from the, from your first teachings, mate. So I appreciate anything, that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's uh, it's been great working with you and, and it's nice to see somebody that takes such pride in the process, right? Like we have a lot of people that are out there coaching, but you've continuously just kept climbing the ladder with success after success after success. And, and I know your schedule gets pretty busy like we all do, but you're somebody that I really want to have coming back on, uh, the ecobolic podcast as much as we can we can get you on as much as people can tolerate you and i talking about the nuts and bolts right like yeah. <laughs> you know it's it's uh, uh, probably slow down a little bit with my talk but no yeah, sure. it, it's it's a huge amount of information and and i think we can go layer after layer after layer so hopefully if your schedule allows i definitely like to get you back on in the next couple months and and just keep grinding away at, at some of the nuts and bolts you and ryan family both are two guys that i really enjoy getting on and, and talking depth with because you have so much experience on the gym floor so if it's if it's not too much to ask i definitely like to have you back on the show in the future 
No, hundred percent, mate. And uh, on the back of that, if uh, if you're keen to come down to, to Sydney again and uh, do another seminar, mate, we're about to open a new gym, the Triple X Fight Academy, which is going to be something around this area that they won't have, which is basically two floors, all the fight stuff upstairs, all the strength and conditioning downstairs with a, a college eight sort of system, which is a track down the middle, the platforms on one side, the rehabish bodybuilding stuff, bodybuilding stuff on the other side. Uh, mate, if you're keen to come back down and throw another seminar on, uh, happy to have you. That would be fantastic. It definitely is something that we should sit down and put together. 100%. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brad, very much. It's been a, thank it's, you. It's been a great interview. Too easy, mate. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to Ecobolic Radio. For more information about upcoming guests and episodes, please follow Derek Woodsky on his Instagram or at DerekWoodsky.com. 